Do you want to start a thriving real estate career, but don't know where and how to start? Do you want to become a successful realtor or investor, but lack the required knowledge and skills? Gear yourself up with the best and actionable advice here on The Real Estate Rundown. Tune in as Shannon Robnett talks with industry veterans about all kinds of asset classes, market trends, challenges, management techniques, and success stories. Listen to informative discussions with valuable tips that will serve as the foundation for your incredible real estate venture. Now, here's your host, Shannon Robnett. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of the Real Estate Rundown. Guys, today I've got a special guest. I've got my friend Peter Siegel on the show. And today we're going to talk about demonstrating success, happiness, financial well-being through relationships, through execution, perseverance, and by providing access to investing in cash-flowing real estate and how all of that comes together. And I'm super excited to have Peter on the show. Good morning, Peter. How are you? Shannon, I'm great. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So I gave everybody like this huge thing that we're going to be talking about because, you know, kind of as two experienced guys here, we've seen challenges, we've seen trends, we've seen things that are good in the business, we've seen things that are bad. We've been around for a long time, but Peter, how long have you been in the business of multifamily? And tell us kind of a little bit about your process to get where you are today. Man. Okay. Well, I'm 53 years old, Shannon. I've been doing this for over 30 years, almost 31 years. You know, it happened overnight, right? Absolutely. Over 31 years and it was a very quick 31 years and here I am. Yeah. By the way, you don't look a day over 65. So for being in real estate, that's actually really quite a compliment, right? <laughs> I, I understand what you mean. And I take that as a compliment for sure. People ask me all the time how you get started, how I got started. I grew up the youngest of four boys. We're from Trenton, New Jersey. My grandfather, when he passed away, left my brothers and I a building in Trenton, New Jersey. Most people would say, oh, that's great. You're so lucky. You inherited a building. How amazing is that? Believe me when I tell you, you wouldn't have wanted this building. This building was a time suck. It was a money suck. It was falling apart. It didn't make money, but I had to take care of it. My brothers were all off at school and they were much older than I was. And at 12 years old and at 13 years old, I had to ride my bike into Trenton, New Jersey and meet roofers and locksmiths. And it was at the time, I didn't really understand what was happening. But looking back, it was an incredible experience because I gained skill sets that at a very young age that I never would have had the opportunity to have acquired. And while we didn't make any money with this building, I certainly became pretty good at interfacing with other people in our industry that I needed to interface with to keep this building you know, dry and safe and locked up and secure. And whatever I was doing at the time it wasn't even rented at the time. But, you know, and fast forward, I went to college because back in those days, we used to go to college to become more employable, to become more hireable, to earn a larger salary compared to the competition out there that perhaps didn't have the same degree or any degree at all, right? That, that was the culture back then of going to college. And I went to college and got an MBA, business degree undergrad, and an MBA in real estate and economics at the graduate level. And... I find that the skills I learned when I was 12, riding my bike to the building to meet with the roofers and locksmiths are more of the skills that I deploy today at 53 years old than the skills that I learned getting my master's degree in real estate and economics. I mean, I learned all of those things in college, but 
you can learn about them now, you know, like it's acquiring knowledge is so more accessible, plentiful, and easy now for so many people, for everybody really, that you don't really have to go to college. And this is probably a discussion for another podcast, Shannon, but, you know, perhaps ultimately will contribute to the decline of higher education at some point, because I think it's got its economic and cost benefit challenges college does. Well, but- and that's, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, when my kids were looking at college, I had one that wanted to go into the dental field and we started looking at it. If you just went into general dentistry, you'd pay about $150,000 and you make about 150,000 a year. And, and then if you went into, you know, orthodontics, then you'd pay about 250 and you'd make about 250. And then if you went into oral surgeons, oral surgery or periodontitry, then you're about 400,000 and you can make about 400,000. And then I look at my other child who is looking at a completely different degree. That's still 150 grand. And the pay is about $45,000. And so we had to have this conversation. And, you know, I went to college for the first day of the semester. I didn't realize that there was multiple days. And, you know, and I have found that the people that are the most employable are those that can solve the problem, not put a degree in a plaque and put it on the wall. And so I completely agree with you that that 12-year-old probably learned a lot more than the guy that at 18 went through that MBA program all those years. But so now you're here and you obviously took that from one building to where are you at now? What's your portfolio size and what states are you working in? So I'm located in New York and New Jersey, the regional MSA here. I've got 2,000, approximately more than 2,000 units under management and some commercial properties. When I say 2,000 units, multifamily residential apartment buildings. So 2,000 units plus of those under management, some commercial space, some office space, some warehouse mixed use, But 90% of what I do is multifamily. And typically what I do is I choose to purchase vintage garden style apartment buildings and deploy capital into them, provide better apartments, renovate, create amenities where there weren't any. Yesterday, we bettered the properties and were able to achieve an increase in rents by improving the properties and what we call forcing the appreciation. And we have a little bit in Pennsylvania, a little bit in Florida, but again, 90% of what I do is multifamily in the New York, New Jersey area. And as I said, 31 years ago till now, that was, it was an overnight path, but overnight success, you know, and that's amazing. I don't know why you took 31 years to get to that overnight success, Peter, but we can dive into that a little bit more later, but tell me a little bit more about how, I mean, look, you're in one of the most regulated markets out there. I mean, New York and New Jersey, I don't think behind California, there is anything more regulated. Even, you know, communist China probably doesn't have as many regulations. But the reality is you made it through. You're still here. COVID is understandable at this point. I don't know that it's in front of us or behind us. I think it's all around us. But what was some of the things and the challenges there that you saw that you had to play your way through kind of not blindly, you had experience, but how did you get through that whole COVID situation? Well, for us, Shannon, our properties are mid-price products. So we're not luxury high-end, which I felt was a problem during COVID for a lot of people. And we weren't the low end of the market with the properties and apartment product that was just not properly maintained that didn't have strong tenancies. We sit right in the middle. So for us, when, when I say we sit right in the middle, our rents are... $1,350 to $2,100 a month to qualify for an apartment with us. We screen tenants for a 35% income to rent ratio. So that means that they'll make $45,000 to $120,000, $150,000, some of our tenants make. 
and a minimum FICO score of 670. So with that screening process, we're able to attract strong tenants that have good financial backgrounds and wherewithal to, to pay rent, but we're able to attract them also because the product that we're offering in the mid-priced range is the best in the mid-priced range. So, you know, you have a lot of choices when you go onto these websites, you see apartments that cost all different prices and a lot of them just are shitty. And a lot of them you want, everybody wants a clean, nice space yeah. that's recent and new and with amenities. So we just found ways to deliver that type of product in the mid price point. And so our apartments stay full. We don't have people leaving us because they're poorly maintained or there's leaks everywhere. or There's bugs everywhere. Like you will see with garden style product, walk up product. Mm -hmm. And we don't have people leaving us because they want to pay $10,000 a month for a penthouse somewhere in some luxury situation. Cause that's just not the profile of our customers. So our customers mid priced, our products mid priced and we're able to create a good marriage. So that was really helpful. I didn't have a lot of non-pays. I didn't have a lot of defaults during COVID out of the portfolio. We maybe had, you know, 15 or 18 COVID arrears and we work with people. It's important to, that's the other thing, Shannon, as you have to know, real estate is a little bit bricks and mortar and land, but it's mostly people. It's a people right. business and you have really to work is. with your people, service people, communicate like with any relationship, a lot of communication is necessary. We over communicate with people. I was sending out daily emails and recaps and we were directing people to the various sources for rental aid and for unemployment. I, mean, I don't know anything about unemployment, but I learned quickly how it all worked because I needed to help my tenants reach it. They were stuck in their homes. They didn't, they were scared. And, you know, I mobilized a lot of informational resources and, and shared it with my tenants. So there was a lot of communication. So they stayed, they didn't move out. Now they may have not moved out because it was scary to move out during COVID. And when the shit was hitting the fan, people really didn't want to move anywhere. So right, maybe no, that was, yeah, but they stayed, it was comfortable, clean living that they were experiencing with us. And I think that that helped us prevail through COVID. You know, if we had offered crappy product, if we were slumlords, if we were, you know, whatever the phrases are, if we were any of that stuff, it just wouldn't have been good. And we would have lost people for sure. But we had met about 15, 18 people that fell into arrears. We worked with them and got through it. And you know, what's amazing, Shannon, we had our budget meeting a few weeks ago and every budget meeting, we pull up all the buildings, we go through the numbers, we flip through them real quick, make sure there's no pressing issues. We have the arrears list. And Throughout all of COVID, we were seeing the list of the 18 people that were in arrears and the arrears were built up, you know, $10,000, $20,000, you know, people were trying to pay, but they built up arrears. Last budget meeting, we looked at the list and it was down to three people. I'm like, where are the other 15 people? I said, Peter, they paid. I'm like, what? They paid? What do you mean? I'm looking at the list. It was like $160,000, $170,000 that, that just magically showed up in July and August. I said, where did this money come from? Peter, that was the CARES Act money. They got that rental aid that the federal government sent down to the states and counties and it got dispersed and they cleared up the arrears. Shannon, I was silent. My jaw hit the floor. I was silent. They were looking at me like, why doesn't Peter speak? I was stunned. Nothing stuns me. That stunned me. And I thought, wow, am I happy about this? Like we got 160 or $70,000. So that's like good. But it felt so weird to me. I was so conflicted that this is part of the printing of the money and it flowed to us. And, you know, really conflicted about it. Like, yeah, I didn't know if yeah. it was a good thing or not, even though I was the beneficiary of it. Well, you know that that really costs somebody because nothing is from nothing. That $140,000, it came into your account and that helped stabilize some things. Maybe it helped do some things. But 
it's kind of like I continue to tell people that, you know, there's nothing, I can't point to one thing the government does good, right? They don't even do it well. Everything that they do, everybody else can do better. And the reality is you can take anything that you want. And when the government does it, they can't even build a fighter jet on budget, right? They got $40,000 toilets on a space station. You know, these things just don't make sense, but it's because they're not motivated like you are. And I think you just lined out a perfect example. If you had inferior product, if you had poor customer service, if you had these things and you combine that with a pandemic, now you have a real problem. You'd be crushed. Because you're a good operator, because you understand that you have to maintain because you never know what tomorrow's going to bring. You have to make sure that your customer service is on point, whether it's servicing them because you have a national emergency or servicing them just because you want them to stay. You know, one of the things that I figured out early on, Peter, is I can charge $35 a door more for my property than the one next door if I'll put somebody in my management position that really loves their job. And when you start looking at 180 units at $35 a door per month makes, that's $2.4 million at a five cap. You can't afford to have somebody that's grumpy, right? Absolutely. You have to break it down. Yet, when was the last time you called the IRS and got somebody that was cheerful? (laughs) I'm not even cheerful when I call the IRS. Why are you calling the IRS? Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes you got to get a copy of this or a copy of that, or you got to check on why your return didn't get posted, stuff like that. But you've been able to manage through this. Is there anything that happened during COVID that other than getting a $140,000 check that hadn't happened some other time during your career to some extent or the other? In 2008, we deployed a lot of communication as well. We had to communicate then. It wasn't as scary as it was during COVID. So, But the communication thing survived. That's not the, the question you asked. You asked what was different. The rush to deploy sanitation resources into the buildings, we turned off the four pay laundry machines and opened them up and made them free. There was a shortage of quarters. People didn't want to touch money. They didn't want to touch appliances that other people had touched. So we just made them all free for a year. And that was a first. We, of course, installed all the hand sanitizers and the various other things in the building so that people could hit the coats to get in and clean their hands. Felt that was important to do. And so we quickly, I want to upgrade it if that's the right word, but but, installed or upgraded these buildings. But when you look at it, Peter, I mean, this was just another aspect of customer service, right? You were already giving some of the best customer service in your market. That's why you had the tenancy levels that you had. So you mentioned in 2008, you deployed a lot more or you deployed a lot of communication to make sure people stayed, that you weren't losing customers at that time when it was very important. Probably, did you see anything different during 9-11? I mean, that was a scary time. I mean, that was something that an experienced operator weathered and an inexperienced operator splattered. 9-11 wasn't economic. So I distinctly remember that the fear and the FUD and the marketplace at that time was non-economic and it was this other stuff that was going on. It was sort of fear for your life or fear for your safety. It wasn't fear for not being able to pay. And 2008 was a liquidity crisis. So those that needed to borrow couldn't and those that needed to replace old money with new money couldn't. And so, as you remember, things just came to a screeching halt, but people weren't afraid for their lives. And the pandemic It's a bit of both, right? Because people are afraid for their lives. They're afraid for their safety and they're afraid for their money, their financial capabilities. As I watched the pandemic unfold, 
the thing that I most often reminded myself of, and I love this quote because I just keep coming back to it. It's when James Carville said, it's the economy, stupid. And you have to have health. Without health, you can't do anything, but you have to have money. You have to be able to have resources to aid in your health and wellness and that of your family. You have to be able to help yourself in order to help others. You can't do anything for others if you're not well and strong. And I've been listening to all the debates about the pandemic and how people felt and what they're scared of and what they're concerned of and concerned with and keep coming back to, well, you know, I'm hearing you, man, but I think you want your job. I think you want to make the money. I think, you know, it's the economy. It's your economy. You need money. People need money. And I saw a lot of people discount the need for money because they were getting so much of it without having to do anything for it. So they were very quick to say, well, I don't need money as they were making 600 a week. I don't, money's not important to me as they got the $1,400 thing. And so I saw a lot of that. What did you see that was different? You know, I saw it. It was more of a panic. I saw it was, I mean, 2008 was a long slide backwards, right? I mean, we saw it was going to get better. It was going to get better. It was going to get better. And I think, you know, with COVID, it got better as we got more information. I think the fear of not enough information paralyzed people. And I think that while we attempted to make the world a better place by providing the safety, quote unquote, of having a check come to you, whether you worked or not, I think that the economic issues that we've caused our future generations is going to be a burden that a lot of people cannot bear. I thought when I cashed the check for $160,000 that we got from the CARES Act, I said, I'll yeah. take the 160, but we're paying for this. Yeah. With interest. And, you know, you're going to pay for somebody else's also because they applied for the forgiveness. You know, nobody forgives a $168,000 check, especially the government. Right. <laughs> I mean, but the reality is what I saw was the good operators still did OK. Bad operators or inexperienced operators still struggled. Right. And what I saw was that it was our experience that we were able to look back on and go, I get it. It's like my kids were looking at it. You know, I had children that were born the year of 9-11, so they never experienced it. They didn't understand it. And so this was their first, oh, my God, the world is, could be ending thing, right? I mean, I remember the fear of 9-11. We all know exactly where we were that day. And I hate to keep coming back to that, but I think this pandemic is on that scale of marking the world's history for something that happened. And, and so my kids are looking at this going, what are we going to do? And I go, we're going to do the same thing we always do. We're going to get up. We're going to put our pants on, whether we Zoom with them on or not. That's a different story, right? But we're going to put our pants on. We're going to go to work and we're going to do what we can. And I saw that good operators did good. In fact, good operators did great. And that was because of the things, just like you talked about early on, Peter, was your maintenance was spot on. You know, your people were there. They were experienced. They were ready to handle the situations. They were, oh, you know what? I never thought about that. Quarter shortage. Yeah. Let's turn on the washer and dryers. Let's make that free. Hand sanitizer by the front door. Because you had people that were thinking about how do we make this a great experience for our guests, for our tenants anyway. And so I think that that's, that was kind of the point I was trying to get. Where do you see things going from here? I mean, we're going into an inflationary period, right? We've got prices going up. We got housing prices going up. We got, where are we going? That's a good topic. So I see a rising interest rate environment coming. I don't think it's going to spike, but I think it's going to gradually be increasing. The 10-year treasury is already at 150 basis points. It hasn't been there since early June. So we're seeing the 10-year start to creep up. We're hearing hints that the Fed's going to adjust its policy to allow for some increases in the rates coming up in 2022. I don't think it's going to spike, but I think it's going to go up. 
I don't know that we're going to hit seven, eight, nine, ten 10% interest rates, but we're probably going to go from this current environment, which is just very low interest rate environment to fives, mid fives, maybe 6%. So I see that happening. And with that, as we know, comes an adjustment in values of assets. As interest rates go up, the value of assets are going to adjust accordingly. I think that there's a major shift in workforce and employment. So the people that we always counted on to rent apartments from us in our markets are going to be a different set of people. And perhaps, well, we know there's more work from home. We know that people are valuing things differently now. Before, we used to cater to people that needed to rent an apartment nearby where they lived. And it was an easy commute and it was a good price. Now we get people that are renting from us that are less price sensitive because there's all this money that's out there that has been absorbed by the system, our prospective tenants included. So they're less price sensitive. We're seeing a rise in rents. So they're able to absorb the rise in rents. We're seeing them not need to commute. They have other needs. You know, they want to get packages safely and securely. They want to like all these new things, which for mid-level, mid-price garden style apartment buildings are big things to deal with. Obviously, new construction, there's a package delivery room and a secure area and probably a doorman and other things like that. We don't have those types of things in our buildings. They're class B, B plus, some cases are A minus, but the minus is that they're unmanned, unstaffed. So I see the, the profile of our tenants changing. And I see the need to deploy service and excellence. It's always been there, but I see it as so critical right now. If you're not deploying excellence, if you're not striving for excellence, you're just going to get left behind. And not just in real estate, Shannon, anything that's going on right now. The cookies are crumbled and the dust is settling now. Let me go back a little bit, Peter, because you mentioned that as interest rates rise, it affects the cost of the assets, but you weren't clear. What does that really mean to you with your experience when interest rates go from, let's say, three to five? Well, for me, it's not going to mean that much. When we first got on this call together, and I don't know if we were recording it then, I told you that I potentially lose sleep or could stay up all night worrying about two things. One, an unprecedented act of mother nature and two, an unprecedented act of terrorism. I'm located in the New York, New Jersey area. Those are the things that concern me the most. Interest rates will always fluctuate. And if you run a good business, and if you know how to deploy debt into your assets and not over lever like we saw back in in 2008, when everyone was getting 90 or 85 or 95 LTV in some cases, uh, you know, we will carry anywhere from 60 to 75 LTV in a rising rent environment. So what I don't want to do is be caught five years down the road when rates go from three to five or six and my rents haven't moved at all. That would be an issue, but my rents are increasing. I know that as they're increasing, they're still really catching up to the median rents within the state. So while they're increasing, sure, they're not really where the rest of the world is around us. So there's room to grow. And I I'm seeing our rents grow. And so when I have to take out my existing debt with new debt three or five years out, which is going to be at a higher interest rate, I'll be able to cover that because my values won't be fluctuating so much because my income and expenses is going to be really strong, if not greater than it is now. So, you know, for me, I don't really worry about the swing of interest rates. But I think for a lot of people that haven't been through the 9-11s and the 2008s and all the other economic events of our past 30, 40 years, maybe they've over levered on an asset that 
doesn't have enough rent creep. That's what we call it. And if those, those rents aren't creeping and you have too much leverage and you have to replace it at a higher cost, the same amount at a higher cost, you're going to get squashed on values yeah. and you're going to have to put money in. I haven't had to experience that because of the mindfulness. I pay attention to those details, whereas a lot of people don't. And if you're renting in our business, if you're in multifamily or really in commercial in any regard, if you're renting to tenants and not delivering them excellence, and if, if they're not as credit worthy, unfortunately, everybody got hit by the pandemic. So we saw the Uber and Lyft drivers get crushed. We saw the taxi, you know, we saw people that make cash that have all sorts of, you know, jobs that aren't like traditional employment with a company, but they make cash. They got hurt. Those buildings got hurt. So, you know, those operators of those buildings got really hurt, unfortunately. And so I think rates are going up. I think values are going to adjust. I tell you, Shannon, I can't believe some of the values that we see now for real estate of all kinds, but especially in multifamily. I'm sure you see it out there. You know, and I think that the people that are chasing it are, they're really break down into two categories. One that have massive amounts of cash to deploy, like a REIT, right? People that you and I can't really compete with or people who are new. I mean, you know, I'm looking at, you know, looking at advising some friends in Nashville on a deal and the deal has gone from 130 to 160 a door in a market that 130 was a stretch, right? What are average rents? The average rents are right at a thousand, you know? That's a lot. That's a lot, you know, and the deal is all of a sudden escalated up and it doesn't make sense, especially Peter, because of all the things you just mentioned, right? If we were going into a declining rate environment, if we were not going into an inflationary state, if we were solid on our economic recovery, then none of those things would be as crucial because I completely agree with what you're saying. Not just because you're a good looking guy that I like and is a good friend of mine, but really because those are intelligent things to be being said right now is because they are going up and that will affect pricing. And when it does affect pricing, it will affect everyone because what you're going to have is you're going to have the guy that bought this at 160 a door that starts to go under. And so now he's doing whatever he can to get whatever occupancy he can, or he's going to just shut the whole thing down and it's going to affect everybody negatively, right? And so those are all going to be pressures that are going to affect good operators, just like they affect the bad ones. And all of that is coming true almost on a daily basis, right? Yeah. Well, the bad ones will get weeded out. The good ones will presumably have the capital to take advantage of acquisition opportunities when that adjustment occurs. Right now, my pipeline of buying new assets is about as thin as it's ever been. So you asked how I was, you mentioned competing with the private equity firms, which I don't. Right. You asked how I got to 2000 units over 31 years. So I did that by focusing on a segment that no one else was focusing on. I focused on asset sizes of 20 to 100 units typically. I mean, there's some that are larger, but by and large, smaller asset sizes, smaller transaction sizes, where the larger players that had more capital to deploy, it was too small for them, but it wasn't too small for me. And I was able to sort of exist in this world without all of that competition of the permanent and professional capital. Once you get up into these 200, 300, 500 unit recently built complexes, class A, these big communities, it starts to get very, very competitive. And that's why prices are, are where they are right now. But I avoided that for a long time. And so I have a portfolio of a lot of buildings with, you know, two consisting of 2000 units, as opposed to maybe four or five buildings consisting of 2000 units, because I didn't want to compete in that space. So how did you build your capital stack? I mean, how are you funding these deals when you do get them? The first deals, Shannon, were by myself. The first ones, I, the first several I did were by myself. 
with the equity, I did have someone co-sign on my first loan for me because I had no, I was a kid, I was in college, I couldn't get housing in the dorms. So I bought a six family, lived in one, rented out the others. And in order to do that, I needed a co-signer on the loan because I was 20 nothing years old and had no credit and whatever. So I needed a co-signer, got one. And then it evolved. The next several deals I did after that were just small things that I could afford in areas that were affordable. I mentioned I was from Trenton, New Jersey. So I did some there. I moved up to New York City. I was in Harlem, the Bronx, parts of Brooklyn. And these were areas that hadn't yet started on their path of, of gentrification and improvement and economic development. So you could buy buildings and you know, I was buying them by myself. And then as I needed to get capital, transitioned to the friends and family world, which I think everybody who's been on a path in business, whether it's real estate or anything else, if you're an entrepreneur, you have to recognize that your friends and family are a great source of capital for you when you're starting out. I recognize that. So I was able to hit up college and high school friends and Uncle Bill and Aunt Susie. Shannon, they were writing me checks for five and $10,000. One person back when I was 23 years old wrote me a check for $50,000. I mean, when I got that check for 50,000, I was ringing the bell, man. It was a lot of money for me. I had to be responsible for it. I had a fiduciary. I had to go to work and create value and deliver them return on their investment. I mean, all those things. And it grew and grew and grew out of friends and family into a larger network. And now at this point for me, I've got you know a few deals I'll do by myself if I have all my own capital, and I do that still. And then when it's a larger deal, I syndicate it out and I raise money from investors who have been with me, new and old, because I have new people reaching out to me saying, hey, we'd like to talk to you about investing. And I've got maybe a contact list of 100 or 120 investors that have been with me for the course of the past 30 years, 25, 30 years. And that's how you do it. You build, you grow, you expand, you know, you have to start somewhere. So I started buying pieces of crap with what little money I had and then expanded into larger pieces of crap and then expanded into not so pieces of crap. Yeah. And, you know, when you bring partners on, when you bring investors on, you grow together, you make money together, you have to treat the money right. This is something my older brother always told me and I didn't know what it meant until I got into business. I'm like, what do you mean? You have to treat the money. Like you have to treat the money right. As an entrepreneur, you need money, you need capital, bend over backwards for it. We talked about providing service. I mean, to your residents, sure, but to your investors, you know, they want K-1s without waiting or asking. They want reports. They want communication. They just want to know they're making money. They want to know that their capital is safe with you. And you have to give people a sense of confidence and safety when you're raising money and responsible for their money. If you're out fly by night and running around and you're behaving like a moron and you do stupid stuff and you social media, I don't know, people might not be so confident. So, <laughs> And you see, there's a lot of young kids out today raising money and sponsoring deals and you know, I always like to get in the rooms with them and challenge them and ask tough questions because ultimately I find that a lot of them don't have the answers to the tough questions. And then right. maybe they need a little bit more experience before they start raising money. But that was my. And, and, you know, that's the funny thing. Again, it's this 30 years it took to come up with the right recipe to be that overnight success. Right. I mean, you know, I had an experience early on, Peter, where a guy had loaned me a very sizable sum of money and I didn't treat it right. You know, he's a good friend. And I didn't communicate. And I learned that lesson very, very painfully because I was taking advantage of the relationship. I was assuming that because we're buddies, I didn't need to treat you like you were an investor with me. And I learned that very, very painful lesson. Thank goodness my friend was more of a friend than ever because he allowed me a second chance to be friends. 
He didn't let the money ruin the friendship, which I've seen happen too. But I learned that lesson on the painful side. And I'm not afraid to share that because that's the kind of things that have taught me that now when I get, you can't treat somebody else's money like your own money, right? You got to treat somebody else's money better than your own money. Because I've seen some of the stuff that I've done with my money. My garage is full of all these things that were going to change my life. And I was going to use a hundred thousand times that are now sitting on a shelf that I've used my money for. I need to treat my investors' money better than that. And so those are the kind of things that, again, that are challenges that we've learned and we've grown through. And, you know, sitting fireside with somebody that's been in battle for 30 years doing this stuff is kind of refreshing because we're sharing the same stories. You know, so often I hear these people that have, they've been in syndication for five years and life is wonderful and things are awesome and they're killing it. And that's awesome. But Peter, the scenario you described with rising inflation, rising rates and declining costs based on rates, that's a storm brewing that, that a lot of people haven't seen. And so I'm afraid that the challenges that are coming are going to, again, separate the experience from the new people. And there's going to be those that learn some hard lessons. What are you doing different or are you doing anything different to prepare your company for what's coming? Yeah, great question. We talk about it all the time. We had meetings about it today. So a few things that we're doing as the world changes, we have to change. If you don't grow, you die. So we're growing to adapt and pivot into this new world, deploying technology more than ever before in all sorts of new ways. So technology in the buildings, technology in the management office, anywhere and everywhere, we can deploy technology to streamline our processes throughout our daily blocking and tackling of running buildings and dealing with people. We deploy that technology. I'm always investing in technology. We just updated our tenant management database platform a couple of months ago. I've got a new investor management platform now. Everything's seamless, simple. It's secure now, so you can do these things now. I mean, five years ago, you know, it was the infancy of a lot of this stuff with uh, technology and real estate. But now I think it's gotten good enough. I'm really looking to make investments technologically wherever I can in real estate. And it's so fun, too, because, you know, it's such real estate, such like unsexy boring, you know, it's like a building and you, I don't know, it's not much going on. It's it's not like I own a sports team or I own a restaurant. It's social and fun. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not that exciting. It doesn't Uh, move. It it doesn't mow its own grass. I mean, you know, it's a lot of work. Right. I love making it exciting. It's exciting to me by putting a lot of technology in place. So we're doing that. I focus a lot on people, the people that are in our company that work with me are the best people I can find. I over-index on my people. Yeah, uh, yeah. You were mentioning that earlier, and it, I'm even inspired to and, and, and even pressured to more than ever before over-index on people. And to me, it's you can't have good enough people. You can't spend enough on your people. It's You got to have great people around you and with you all the time. I'm doing it more than ever. And I think that's going to be part of the recipe for the future. That's a recipe of experience. Yeah. You know, when, when I first started, I didn't have the money to hire good people. And I didn't have the experience to understand that a good person is going to save you twice what you paid them. A bad person is going to cost you five times what you paid them. Right. You know, and right. the difference, the delta between saving $200,000 a year and costing you $600,000 a year, that's 800 grand. I didn't have the understanding and the capacity then to understand what I know now. And that is such a great, great point because a lot of people operate from, a penny-pinching mindset instead of an abundance mindset that if I pay for the best and I expect the best, I'm going to get the best. My tenants are going to get the best. And I'm going to keep that high level of expectation on all things from my bank accounts, to my occupancy, to my staff, to the way my places look. 
that's all going to come through in that abundance mindset. And that's such a huge point. Thank you. Thank you for making that point. And experience gives you the ability to have that abundance mindset more so. And, you know, Shannon, when I first started off, I was a bit of the brunt of a, of a few jokes. I'd be out to dinner with my friends or my brothers in New York City, this great restaurant, everybody were having fun and my, my phone would go off. And ultimately it became the toilet phone because when I was a kid starting off, it was, oh, there's Peter getting a call about a leaky toilet at you know nine o'clock at night. We're down in Soho in New York City and I had to excuse myself and deal with it. Shannon, I don't have the toilet phone anymore. And we get calls that come in at all times of the day. There's emergencies that happen, but they get dealt with professionally, with the sensitivity, with consciousness. My phone doesn't go off anymore because there's great people that pick up the phone, that care, that give a shit, that want to help out. Because yeah. when the phone rings and you have to deal with something, if you deal with it correctly the first time, it never rings again. So true. If you don't deal with it correctly, it's going to keep ringing. And if you have 100 units or 10 units or 2,000 or 10,000 units, whatever you have, that's a lot of phone calls to field. You know, if you can reduce the amount of phone calls, you know, it's just the right way to scale and to move forward. And to do, it's the right way to do business. Yeah. And we're problem solvers, man. We're entrepreneurs. We, you know, we're here to solve problems. I don't want the same person calling me about the same thing all the time. I mean, well, that's like the, the quickest indication of failure in my book. If you're calling me more than once for the same thing and I didn't address it correctly the first time, I'm so not doing my job. And I'm just not being successful. So I'm driven to create this environment where I empower my people. They feel empowered and they run with it. And so I'm proud about that. That's what got you away from the toilet phone, right? I mean, by doing it right the first time and then hiring people and getting them to do it right the first time. And then you've been able to use your gift because look, I think all of us have physically, literally swapped out a toilet in this business, right? If you haven't, it's kind of a rite of passage. It's not that we want to do that. It's not my gifting. But at the same time, knowing how to put the right person there that understands that this is what I'm good at. I am good at keeping the grounds clean. I am good at the maintenance. And then Peter's good at his job. And Sarah's good at his job. And we're all good at this part that, like a clock, works together. I think it's so key that a lot of people miss that. And they get so caught up in, I can't do it. I'm too good for the toilet phone. And they miss that one step. Here's something that I bet we have in common. There is no job in my company that I haven't done. I'm an expert in everything. I'm an expert in swapping toilets. I'm an expert in changing locks. I mean, I learned how to do all that stuff because I had no one else. And I right. bet you're the same way. And I, I know. It all. Yep. The good thing is, is I've got people in here that when they see me go to do certain things, they go, oh, no. No, 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 no. We can't afford to have you do it. It's going to be seven trips to Home Depot. It's going to be four hours. It's going to be, I'll take care of it in 20 minutes, right? (laughs) They know when I pick up a power drill, it's time to call 911. Somebody's about to get hurt, you know? (laughs) So, But that's, again, that's about having good people that realize and recognize where the expertise comes from, which one's good at it and who should be doing it. And it's also good leadership. Absolutely. To understand that and to empower your people to excel at what they're good at. Peter, we've had some really, really great things that we've talked about here about how we face challenges in every line of work. We overcome them. We look at the future. We look at the past. We come up with a plan. We innovate. We pivot. We do all those things. Give us one more thing that you're looking at the future that you're going to be doing inside of your company that you think a lot of people should be doing to be sure that they're successful and they're around in 2025, 2029, that you think is imperative to be implementing today. Yeah. Shannon, I'm waking up earlier. I'm starting my day sooner. I'm getting to work sooner. I'm doing more in my day. I'm not looking for a work-life balance. 
I'm not looking for weekends off and happy hours on Wednesday hump day and Friday. Thank God the week's over. I'm not looking for that. I'm getting up earlier and I'm getting to it because if I don't, the guy next to me is going to the girl next to me is going to, and they're going to take my food off my table. So I think the world we're entering in more than ever is one where competition is going to be more prevalent and the requirement for all the things, the rest of success is going to be heavier upon us. And I don't want to miss anything. I don't want to lose out. I want to stay in business. I want to stay alive. To me, it's a survival thing. So, and I really feel that as I look at younger people today, you know, I I know a lot of younger people that have these great attributes and those are the ones that I'm looking for. I want to work with them. I, I want to be in relationships with them. And I wish for everybody else that they can take this one thing is get up, get out and get it done. Get your ass out of bed. You know, you can make excuses or you can make good decisions and create success. Which are you going to do? And right. obviously we want to make good decisions and make success. You can't do it from your bed. You can't do it behind the video game control and you can't do it from the bar three, four nights a week. Yep. You're so correct on that, Peter. You and I are a lot alike. I'm getting up earlier as well, just because I know that, you know, we're coming into a time we've had a good run. We're coming into a time when things are going to get tight. It's going to be a little bit harder to make what we made, but it's the something that us overnight successes have been able to acquire the skills to get through that. So thanks, Peter, for stopping by today and being with us and sharing all of this knowledge that you've given us. I really do appreciate you really, really dropping 31 years of knowledge on the table like it was nothing. It was, it's truly been a pleasure. Thanks, Shannon. The pleasure is all mine. I'm looking forward to seeing you soon, man. I know we're going to be uh, catching up soon in person. That's right. So guys, thanks for listening to the Real Estate Rundown. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the Real Estate Rundown on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast to get your automatic updates. You'll also find us on Instagram and YouTube. Leave us a review. Leave us some comments. I'd love to hear your feedback. If you like what Peter has to share today, go ahead and give him a follow as well on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. He's all over everywhere. And check him out on his podcast, The Daily Cash Flow. Check him out. Peter Siegel at SiegelCapital.com. Thanks again, guys, for joining us. That's a wrap for today's episode of The Real Estate Rundown. Let these newfound strategies pave the way to start a successful career or a profound rebranding. If you loved everything you have heard, listen to more conversations at www.shannonrobnett.com and be sure to leave a rating, share it with your friends, and subscribe. Until the next episode.